You're listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. A week is a long time in politics, said Alvarez, that's me, on this podcast only three weeks ago. We're back from our season break and nothing much has changed, right? I am a fighter and not a quitter. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen. Rishi Sunak is therefore elected as leader of the Conservative Party. I am humbled and honoured to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. That's British politics, eh? You can't go away for two minutes without the risk there'll be a new Prime Minister in place when you come back. And it was the mother of all comebacks. Rishi Sunak, who resigned from Boris Johnson's cabinet and ended his premiership, who fought and lost a bitter leadership contest against Liz Truss just this summer, who was out on his ear and maybe leaving Parliament for California, is our new man in number 10. And who knows, he might even manage to stay there to the end of this podcast season. The speed at which he's made it into Downing Street is astonishing. In February 2020, not that long ago, he was a little-known Treasury minister. Six months before that, he was still in his first junior ministerial job. He's gone from departmental bag carrier to actual prime minister in little over three years. And he's our youngest prime minister in over two centuries. Meteoric doesn't quite cover the speed of the Rishi Sunak rise. It's all happened so fast that in truth, we barely know who he is as a politician. He's the man that paid all our furlough wages, sure. But who else is he? Who is our new prime minister? From his early years in Southampton, his deep Hindu faith, to his rise through the ranks in Westminster, I've spoken to the people who've known him, worked with him, observed him, to find out. It is only right to explain why I'm standing here as your new Prime Minister. Definitely wants a lot of data and details. He's one of those people that lived in the library. He took a long time to weigh things up. He lost the leadership election on the basis of a message that he could have changed, he could have said something different, but I think he has been vindicated in that. He can make mistakes visible from space, but not visible to himself. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're going in search of the real Rishi Sunak. So here we are on a quiet tree-lined street. We are on Spindlewood Close in the suburbs of Southampton. And this is where Rishi Sunak spent most of his childhood and teenage years. This is where he grew up. The young Rishi Sunak, born in Southampton General Hospital in 1980, moved here as a young toddler with his parents. His dad was a local GP and his mum ran a nearby chemist's. They're both Indians who had moved to the UK from Kenya and Tanzania respectively a few decades earlier. They started off sharing a home with another family in the Highfield area of Southampton and moved here to a bigger house before Rishi's little brother and sister were born. It's an affluent, leafy road of six-bedroom detached houses, double garages and nice cars 
where Rishi, his siblings and neighbours, would play in the street. I'm now on the corner of a really busy junction, standing outside Bassett Pharmacy, which was Rishi Sunak's mum's small business when he was growing up. Young Rishi Sunak used to do the books for his mum here. This is the family business that I grew up in. And it's where he says he got his approach to economics, his instinctive fiscal conservatism. And it really informed who I am. I'm going to hop in a quick cab because I'm hoping to meet a few people who can shed a bit more light on Rishi Sunak's background. Alba. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's probably yeah, very difficult. It's an Irish name. It's nice. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone struggles with it. <laughs> Rishi Sunak has been coming here to the Vedic Society Hindu Temple in Southampton since he was a boy, volunteering, worshipping, socialising with the Indian community of Southampton and attending lessons about Hindu ethics. Have you been to the temple before? No. It's the first time you were here? Yeah. Excellent. Up on the wall of this big square room with shrines and altars to Hindu deities is a portrait of the god Krishna with a dedication to Rishi Sunak's grandfather, one of the founding members of the temple. His parents still come here, and so does he. So so he he came here the day before he resigned as chancellor, this this place that taught him all about integrity and, and honesty and all those values, yeah. the place where he learned ethics. Um, and and you were saying that he he served everyone first, he, he served everyone food, and then and then he, he ate, ate last. Yeah, ate last, actually. Mm. And was just make sure everyone is happy. Obviously, he had meetings as well at that time. He was getting late, but still he's just giving respect to everyone. Mm. Obviously, while Rishi become Prime Minister, it's just like being Hindu or being Indian. Just like we feel so proud, but at the same time we are proud. Just like we know what kind of lesson he has learned from the Hinduism, and country needed some of the people who really want to serve with their heart. Well, obviously, we all know that we need something special. Mm to take more on the for next step for the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do need someone special to sort things out, that's for sure. <laughs> the priest, Ritesh, kindly invited me to stay for the service. As families with young children, young men, teenagers, old ladies and groups of older men piled in, they told me how meaningful it is to them that the UK has its first brown, Indian, Hindu Prime Minister. Yeah, I'm proud that um, a fellow Indian has become the Prime Minister of the UK. It's, it's like uh, maybe the democracy. Like it's it's nice to see like how everyone is equally like recognised. Basically, it's absolutely a, a great feeling, no doubt in that. And I even met an old friend of Rishi Sunak's late grandfather. Have you have you met Rishi Sunak? Have you been coming to the temple for a long time? I've met Rishi Sunak since he was about three years old. I've seen him growing up in this town. Myself, uh, Rishi Sunak's grandfather and a few other elderlies who have sadly passed away were the first founding members of this organization. And as far as Rishi is concerned, yeah, I've seen him in the temple since his childhood. He's been coming quite a bit. And then slowly and slowly he became a proper Hindu, as we call it. Every time he's in this town, he will come into the temple. As just before he became the prime minister, he has been coming here quite a bit. Mm. And uh, we know his family very well, we know his children, we know his uh, in-laws, the multimillionaires. <laughs> so yeah, we know Rishi Sunak very well indeed. And, and you said um, that you saw him become a proper Hindu. Yes. Um, can you explain, for people who are less familiar with Hinduism, what kind of values that means and, and what you think... Um, are the guiding principles that he that he takes from his faith? Well, when I say proper Hindu, I think the Hinduism had been instilled into him by his grandfather, probably, and then he studied himself as to what is Hinduism, 
and uh, he started respecting all the celebrations, all the things that we do as Hindus. But uh, he knows a lot of history about Hinduism. He can tell you lots of things that a child like his age would have not known. Can you just tell me what what Rishi Sunak was like growing up? He was uh, normally a very disciplined person, but in other sense he was just a ordinary teenager. He was always smartly dressed, nice to speak to, even as a young boy, very polite and uh, very clever. I didn't expect him to become a prime minister, but I always thought he would go very far in his world. To us, it's, it's like an Obama era again. Obama was the first colored president of the United States. Now we got the first colored prime minister of the United Kingdom. And him being a Hindu as well, obviously gives us a lot of pride that lots of children now in our temple that comes here might be able to look up to him and say, look, if he can do it, we can do it. In an interview for this podcast last year, while he was still Chancellor and handling the fallout from COVID, Rishi Sunak himself told Jack about the role his Hindu faith plays in his life including a lovely story about leaving a statue of Ganesh to watch over Boris Johnson while he had COVID. I mean, it is an important part of my life. And I was obviously raised as a Hindu. And, you know, I I pray with my kids in the evening when when I'm around to put them to bed and things like that. So it is important to me. I I guess there's there's a concept in hinduism called dharma which is i guess it doesn't have a direct english translation but your duty would probably be the closest word so i think that that as a concept is quite helpful because you know you you do this because you believe in public service and you're trying to do the right thing and serve a country that has done an enormous amount for my family uh, not not least um, accepting them you know some decades ago when my grandparents parents came here then i get strength from it in other you know, in other little ways as as well. I have a I have a little Lord Ganesh statue, which I took me day one into the job, which which you do to bring you good luck. The same way as like an Indian rickshaw driver, you will always see that I have a little uh, Ganesh uh, statue somewhere in there, rickshaw probably, or anyone when they start a new business, uh, you you would do that. That Lord Ganesh is still on my desk in uh, in number eleven. Actually, I left I left it in there. Actually, my wife was insistent we left it in there when the PM was sick before coronavirus, and uh, he used my office in number eleven because he lives above, so it was easy for him to have this walled-off area where he could come up and down. And so he was using my office in number eleven. And I took I took all my stuff out, but uh, actually was insistent we 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 left that there for him to keep an eye on him as well. As night fell over Southampton, and I slipped away from the temple to catch my train. The main thing that struck me was that that was only one of Rishi Sunak's worlds. He was rooted in the world of Southampton, his family, the football team, the Indian community, and the faith that would become so important to him. But he was also inhabiting a second world. The Rishi Sunak story isn't just about immigration and ethnicity. It's also about class. As I walked back to the train station in Southampton, I passed John Lewis, the shop where Rishi Sunak's doctor father took on extra work to pay his talented son through Winchester College, one of the country's most famous public schools. Rishi Sunak was also moving in the world of Britain's elite. His parents bought him a one-way ticket that propelled him into the British establishment, an experience that he himself says put him on a different trajectory. And it did. From there, he went up to Oxford, to Lincoln College. And you might have heard that slightly awkward interview Rishi Sunak gave as a student there about the people he rubbed shoulders with. I have friends who are aristocrats, I have friends who are upper class, I have friends who are, you know, working class, but I'm not working class, but I mix and match and then I go to see kids from an inner city state school and tell them, you know, to apply to Oxford and talk to them about people like me and then I shock them at the end of chatting to them for half an hour and tell them I was at Winchester and you know my best friends is from Eton or whatever you know. Yep I can feel my toes curling at that. Like lots of would-be politicians Rishi Sunak studied politics, philosophy and economics, PPE, the famous 
or notorious Oxford course studied by 29 prime ministers before him. But unlike lots of aspiring politicians at Oxford, he wasn't one of those young Tories going to port and policy to discuss Tory politics dressed in tweed or dressing up in white tie to speak in debates at the Oxford Union. Instead, he was a library geek and a key target voter for another aspiring politician. So Rishi and I were both uh, students at Lincoln College, Oxford. He was the year above me. Shabana Mahmood now runs election campaigns for the Labour Party as its national campaign coordinator. She's one of the people credited with turning the ship around for Labour after their disastrous defeat in the Hartlepool by-election. But she was running election campaigns long before that. At the end of my first year, I ran for JCR president, which is the equivalent of the college student union body. Uh, They're not party political elections, I hasten to add. Uh, But I ran for election and I was always pretty sure Rishi Sunak did vote for me. (laughs) And I've since had it independently fact-checked by uh, somebody else who was at college at the same time, who, when uh, Rishi Sunak became prime minister, got in touch and said, oh, do you remember that time we voted for you for JCR president? I got almost all of the geek vote in that particular election and he was part of a fabled generation of PPEists at college and uh, they were all, you know, destined to get first and do really well and the rest of us would often eye roll away at, you know, how we're doing proper subjects and they're just doing PPE. So uh, there was just that kind of joshing. Um, So I mostly remember that he's one of those people that lived in the library. Uh, But then when I became an MP in 2010, he was elected in 2015. And when he came in, I thought, hmm... I'm not, I bet you he's not sure what it says about him that he voted for me and I'm not sure what it says about me, so we both sort of never mentioned it. And how did you pitch for the geek vote, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> oh gosh, it was a long time ago, but I was up against a couple of other candidates. You know, college elections, they can be quite sort of aggressive affairs and quite cliquey, uh, and I was very much not cliquey, so everybody who wasn't in the clique was, I was basically their friend because I was one of them. So that's how you do it. After all those hours in the library, Rishi Sunak did indeed get a first, and then took the next step on what you might call the golden boy trajectory. He went on to Goldman Sachs. To some of us still, the great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, as Rolling Stone memorably put it. But to a certain type of Oxford grad, it's surely the most prestigious place to begin a career in the lucrative world of finance. From there, he studied for an MBA in Stanford, California, where he met his wife, Akshata Murthy, the daughter of a self-made Indian billionaire, Narayana Murthy. By the time they married, Sunak was independently wealthy himself, thanks to his career in hedge funds while based in California. His time in the States seems to have been genuinely transformative for him, and not just because it's where he met his wife and made most of his money. Members of Sunak's team cringed at how many times he referenced life in California during the leadership contest over the summer. And his instinct for self-promotion, glossy videos, photo shoots, signature graphics, is also something he learned in the States, as he told Jack. If you're a modern politician, I think it's incumbent on you to communicate with people in the way that they engage with how they want to get their news and information. And obviously that's changed over time. And if it comes and it's well presented, that that's good. I think it's fine for things to be professional. And, and that probably comes a little bit from my time you know, in the States and just observing how politics is done there, how people approach communication, use of different media channels. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that had an impact on me. And I was like, okay, there's, there's a way to do this, which where you can engage lots of people and do things slightly differently. And that seems to me to be a positive thing to do. Ironically, they actually had to stop the interview at one point because his personal photographer was clicking away in the background. Okay, yeah, no, no more photos here. Sorry. Yeah, was that clicking? You heard, sorry, right, sorry. <laughs> It remains a bit of a mystery as to why this talented, bright, but not obviously political figure decided to leave the sunny world of Californian finance to pursue a career in British politics. Some suspect it was the network introduced to him by his close school friend, James Forsyth, the Spectator's political editor. 
Others suspect it was encouraged by his wife and famous in-laws. Your uh, father-in-law is obviously uh, Narayan Murthy, a household name in India. When you told him about your decision to get into politics, what, what was his reaction? Uh, he, he was excited. Uh, he was very excited and he's been incredibly supportive. He gives me great advice, you know, live your life with integrity, you know, try and do the right thing. And uh, one of my favourite quotes of his is, in God we trust, but everyone else needs to bring data to the table. And it's something that I try and live by as well. Within a few years, Rishi Sunak was back in the UK, seeking selection as a Conservative MP while working at Policy Exchange, a right-wing think tank here in Westminster. Soon enough, he was the chosen one in the rural, affluent seat of Richmond, the Yorkshire constituency of the former Conservative leader, William Hague. I have campaigned with literally thousands of candidates. This one was the most assiduous and effective I had ever known. Hague backed him to the hilt. He was exactly the kind of talented, international, more diverse candidate David Cameron was keen to bring into the party as he tried to attract the hard-working, small business-owning ethnic minority voters they thought should be voting Conservative, but weren't. Shabana Mahmood would be in for a surprise in Parliament. We didn't see each other after university, uh, of course. And then I was an MP, it was 2015. I was the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. It was a Treasury debate which I'd opened for Labour. And he was with Chris Philp and a couple of other newly elected Tory MPs on the Tory backbenches. And they're all reading out Whip's questions. So I made this joke about, oh gosh, spare me the Tory boy band operation over there, getting their lines from the Whip's office. And there was much laughter in the house. And then I thought, oh gosh, Rishi, that's you. Madam Deputy Speaker, thank you for allowing me to make my first contribution to this House. There was a bit of a buzz around the new MP for Richmond, and one that he didn't discourage. I think it's very clear from the start that he was a very talented, able guy. Alan Mack, the Conservative MP for Havant in Hampshire and a former Treasury Minister, was elected alongside Sunak as part of the Tory class of 2015 and would go on to work with him as Chancellor. He had a unique background in the sense of he was very much anchored uh, in this country. Um, His parents uh, ran a pharmacy in Southampton. Um, He'd built a business here, but actually had, you know, the benefit of a global education, had spent time in California, had then gone to a very successful career in the city. So he was very well equipped to be successful and got stuck in straight away in terms of the economic debates that we were having, coming up with new ideas. He wrote quite extensively about free ports, which would obviously go on to be government policy. He warned about the dangers of our enemies attacking our undersea cables which bring internet to the country. So he was very much at the sort of front edge of thinking and working hard in Parliament and those are you know, really good characteristics and above all he was a very good colleague. Colleagues who knew about finance were impressed by his career. Others intimidated, finding the shopping list of elite institutions and extreme wealth a bit unapproachable. I've always found him very friendly, very collegiate. So you know, when we were um, in his team in the Treasury... Um, look, he invited us to the number 10 flat for, for dinner, you know, was very good at building a team of colleagues. As you know, he's teetotal, so I don't think he's he's someone that is regularly in the bars, but actually I think his favourite drink is Mexican Coca-Cola, which, as he'll tell you, is um, made in a special way, very different to normal Coca-Cola, which um, was an interesting fact. Yeah, I'm a Coke oh, addict, a oh, uh, total Coke uh, addict. Coca-Cola addict. Despite Alan Mack's valiant effort there, The truth is that Rishi Sunak doesn't spend much time hanging around Parliament in the bars and tea rooms, which means some colleagues find him aloof or hard to relate to, a problem that still dogs him today. But as a new MP who had attracted the patronage of William Hague, Rishi Sunak, a Eurosceptic since his days at Winchester, started to impress another important figure. It was... Dominic Cummings, then aide to Boris Johnson, that was the kind of sponsor and champion of, of Rishi Sunak. Here's Sam Coates, Sky News's deputy political editor and one of the best connected journalists in Westminster. Dominic Cummings, before he was Boris Johnson's right hand man, the thing he did was, of course, run, vote, leave. And Rishi Sunak was one of the younger MPs who jumped on board with the vote, leave campaign. And I think it's no secret, and, and Richard Sunak's talked about this, against huge pressure from the then establishment, the, the kind of William Hague's, the very people 
who had, had got the people like Rishi Sunak into power were then trying to stop people like Rishi Sunak backing Brexit. But but Sunak defied that treaties, that pressure from the establishment. And I think that's what first attracted Dominic Cummings to him. And of course, Dominic Cummings' support would prove crucial for Rishi Sunak just a few years later. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. In January 2018, the young, ambitious Rishi Sunak was given his first junior ministerial role as local government minister at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. I always thought that from the moment I met Rishi that he would be Prime Minister, even when he was local government minister. This is Peter Cardwell, the political editor of Talk TV and a former Conservative special advisor, who correctly predicted in his book, The Secret Life of Special Advisors, that Rishi Sunak would one day become Prime Minister. He was someone who just kind of leapt out at you a little bit, um, someone who was just really, really good at his job. We got incredible feedback from people in local government, council leaders, as to sort of how good he was, how across the detail he was, how friendly, approachable he was. I mean, that was obvious as well. But also sort of how tough he was as well. And it was just clear from day one that he was going to go the whole way. And Rishi was just an absolute dream to deal with. He was someone who, anything you asked him that was reasonable, he would do. Um, he would help out, he would come up with ideas. And, and even better than that, he laughed at my jokes. Tell us a little bit more about what he was like while he was finding his feet in his first junior ministerial role. Local government was sort of cut to the bone under George Osborne's austerity, so relations were often diplomatically strained, but he was a brilliant diplomat and the local government association just loved him and thought he was great and they were right. Um, in terms of his attention to detail and his kind of determination, I mean, he was always very polite and very... Um, reasonable with people and I never ever saw him lose his rag or anything like that but one thing that he was absolutely determined to do was to do things to the best possible ability. There was one thing that I remember that I I was involved in which was uh, a a policy that was there was just absolutely no pats on the back from number 10 from it was a very sort of unsexy kind of thing um, which was a policy in regard to putting um, a specific type of uh, toilet for disabled people called changing places large toilets where people can can change and so on um, uh, when they're when they're needed but Rishi just sort of took this policy went forward with it and I remember he went to uh, the Emirates Stadium where Arsenal play football and he recorded a video he was so determined that this video was going to be absolutely brilliant and perfect that I started to kind of jokingly refer to it as Ben Hur because it had gone so, through so many edits and the press office were sort of casting their eyes up going he wants more edits he wants more edits but actually he just wanted it to be perfect going to the football to watch your team play is one of life's great pleasures this was a, a sort of policy that was never going to be the front page of the newspapers or the top of the news buttons but it was something that Rishi really properly cared about. My view is that every family should have the freedom to enjoy the same opportunities that many of us take for granted. But some of that diligence, that perfectionism, 
can come at a cost. In terms of Rishi's weaknesses, I think one thing that slightly frustrated me as a special advisor was that he took a long time to weigh things up. He would take a while to decide whether to do things like media I was putting him forward for or that decision to endorse Boris, for example. He really weighed up uh, over a long period of time. And I'm sure that he's faster at making decisions now because he has to be. There just isn't the time. But he does like a lot of evidence. He likes to get a lot of information and then make up his mind. That's probably a good thing. And I think what we're going to see under him is slightly slower government, slightly more considered government and even in the news cycles since he's become Prime Minister it's become a bit more straightforward, it's become quieter. But we can see that kind of caution and needing to think things through. We all saw that when he was very plainly weighing up whether to resign from Boris Johnson's cabinet. It worked out for him in the end obviously but I wonder if that indecision um can slightly paralyse him and that might be something that we see in his premiership. I think it's not so much indecision as just being quite cautious and I think there are people around Rishi who will say look you've got to make a decision now. I think he is someone who can can make a decision, can make the right decision but he likes to have all the information and sometimes in politics you just don't have all the information. Sometimes you've got to make it through instinct and I think that as Chancellor it's easier to say where's the evidence, show me the evidence, show me the figures whereas Prime Minister sometimes things are a bit more gut instinct. Sunak impressed the special advisor and Secretary of State he was working for. But it was another strategic decision in June 2019 that propelled Sunak forwards in his political career. Two days before the formal start of the leadership campaign to replace Theresa May, Rishi Sunak co-authored an article for The Times with two other young rising stars, Oliver Dowden and Robert Jenrick. Its headline, The Tories are in deep peril. Only Boris Johnson can save us. So I think the article was really quite crucial in Boris Johnson coming through and showing that a new generation of MPs were backing him and would be people who would be loyal to him. And actually, I remember having a number of conversations with him in terms of who he should back and and why he should back them. And he really did take a lot of soundings. I know he was talking to Liam Booth-Smith at that time as well and me and many other people. He came through as a junior minister, the chaos um, of Theresa May's time as, as Prime Minister, and I know he wanted stability and he wanted someone who would be a stable leader, and he thought long and hard about that because Boris wouldn't be a sort of straightforward or predictable person that Rishi would be um, close to. He was close to Michael Gove previously in 2016. He was part of his campaign team for that. But that article was just absolutely crucial and really, really important, I think, not just for him, but for many of his peers as well. When Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in July 2019, Rishi Sunak was rewarded for his endorsement with a promotion to Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And before long, in February 2020, a vacancy came up at number 11 Downing Street. In a blazing row during a reshuffle, Dominic Cummings insisted that the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, give up his special advisers. Javid quit, and fate, or more accurately, Dominic Cummings, smiled on Rishi Sunak, propelling him into the second most important job in British politics just five years after entering Parliament. As he told Jack last year, he simply never saw it coming. I mean, it was a complete shock and surprise when the Prime Minister, you know, very, very kindly asked me to do this job. He, he still jokes about my face as he told me about it over the cabinet table. Um, but I, I didn't really have time for it to sink in because I had a budget to put together in whatever it was, three weeks after he gave me the job. And so we, we got on with that. And then it turned out that two weeks into that three weeks, it was pretty clear that the budget actually had to be quite a different budget or have an extra bit uh, to talk about coronavirus uh, and figure out what to do. I think I'm sure that when I stood up next to the prime minister at that first press conference, people were like, who is this chap and why is he standing next to the prime minister? No one one really knew who I was. Suddenly, we were in a crisis and Rishi Sunak found himself working round the clock making massive decisions to prop up the economy in a manner never seen before in this country. 
I can announce today an unprecedented package of government-backed and guaranteed loans to support business to get through this. We had to figure out what to do at record speed. I was barely at home. I, I mean, I barely saw my wife and kids for that period. We were about to do some quite extraordinary things, you know, shut the country down, stop people from doing things, close businesses down as we fought this disease. And that was going to have enormous implications for people's livelihoods. No point pretending otherwise. It was enormously stressful and, and very hard work. I said whatever it takes, and I meant it. Here's Sam Coates again. When he entered number 11, I think the team in number 10 that put him there had a very specific set of aspirations and hopes, which was they worried that Sajid Javid wasn't quite controllable. They were hoping that Rishi Sunak, who they recognised as bright and independent-minded, but also totally on board with Brexit because he'd been part of that Vote Leave campaign and been one of the first backers of Boris Johnson during the 2019 leadership um, uh, contest. They hoped there was somebody who effectively was, because he was a bit green, was a bit mouldable. And I think the story of Rishi Sunak in the Treasury really was the story of somebody uh, working very hard, yes, finding their feet, and then having to deal with extraordinary things within weeks. There was the pandemic. He had to announce the furlough. Massive, massive decisions that chancellors don't take in their entire careers done um, in the first six to eight weeks. That gave him his own independent reputation. And then I think from there, that was a springboard to him making his own decisions and starting to want to chart his own path. And that period as chancellor, I think, became one of evolving, increasing frustration as he wanted to do things that the man next door wasn't keen on. And, and I think that was at the, the fundament of the problem. I remember when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor, long before he resigned and long before any headlines about the cost of living, he and his team would say that the thing that kept them up at night was the Covid debt. The fear of inflation, that interest rates might go up, and suddenly the government would be paying eye-watering amounts to service the debt it had accrued during the pandemic. Rishi Sunak's priority was to balance the books, and he brought in an increase in national insurance to do just that. But that's when a split emerged in the Tory party about what conservative economics really means in times like these. It was a chasm between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, and it was the one that defined the leadership contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. So I've known Rishi for some time. This is Claire Coutinho, the Education Minister, and Rishi Sunak's first special advisor. When he was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, I was his special advisor. And then I came into Parliament in 2019. And when he was made Chancellor, I was his parliamentary uh, private secretary, his PPS. Claire Coutinho knows all about Rishi Sunak's struggle to win the argument with his party on fiscal conservatism. He was talking about inflation, even sort of mid the pandemic, saying this is something that we should be worried about. And he would always talk about the fact that if interest rates go up by, you know, 1%, that that adds this amount to our debt interest. And we need to be mindful of that. And I think it was all rooted in the fact that we need to think about future generations as well and make sure we're not just pushing an unmanageable debt burden onto them. And then as the inflation crisis became more extreme, you saw him talking about that um, even more, but also about the fact that if, if you end up in a situation where your debt interest payments have gone up hugely, then that puts public services at risk. It puts people's mortgages um, at risk and things become very difficult and actually credit to him I think he had this leadership election uh, and lots of people were saying oh you know your message isn't positive enough and you need to change this and you change that and he just wanted to be honest with people and say this is what I think is happening and this is why we need to take it seriously and you know he lost the leadership election on the basis of a message that um, he could have changed you know he could have said something different but he wanted to say you know, this is what I think the risks are um, and actually, I think he has been, I think he has been vindicated in that. But the economic chasm wasn't the biggest divide between Rishi Sunak and his next door neighbour, Boris Johnson. I always thought that there was a sort of one raised eyebrow in number 11, looking at the behaviour in, in number 10, 
Sam Coates again. One of the bigger scandals of Boris Johnson, one of the more serious things that he ever did was all that stuff around a kind of a series of events we now simply know under the heading of wallpaper. Now that's where a Tory donor ended up essentially funding the Lulu Little wallpaper in the Downing Street flat. Boris Johnson essentially tried to use, you know, donor money for personal gain, right? That was the first time, I think, that I noticed one raised eyebrow about behaviour from the people next door. There was a very short statement put out by Team Sunak about how he paid for the refurbishment of the flat that he lived in Downing Street himself. That came on a busy day, but was designed to send a very clear signal that Rishi does it differently. And, and then as everything unfolded with Partygate, and Rishi Sunak, he was genuinely appalled. And so his way of dealing with it was to try and hide from it. He would not appear on days where everyone was kind of clamouring to get to, to acclaim Boris Johnson in cabinet to shore him up. R- Rishi would be sort of down in the West Country trying to hide from the TV cameras at some private event. And the sense I got was he genuinely found all of that difficult. But here's the rub, which is he's not perfect, right? First of all, there was the story in The Independent about how his wife had non-dom status. And then there was a story that I did about how actually he had had a green card, which was quite weird for the bloke in charge of, you know, the UK taxation and, you know, uh, system and the economy. Um, not least because the rules of a green card require you to be commit to live in the US. And I think that he absolutely hated all of that period where there were questions effectively about his wife, his wife's money, his wife's family's money, um, and him on a very, very profound level. So seven, eight months ago, which is about 30 lifetimes in our current political system, you had a chance of the Exchequer, completely unprepared for the ferocity of the pressure that comes with being in the eye of the storm. And there were points, I think, where he thought twice about whether to continue, particularly when the Covid party fine came out. I think one of the most painful days in politics for Rishi Sunak was when the police concluded their investigation and decided that he too should be fined for attending the quote-unquote birthday party for Boris Johnson. There was Kate. Rishi Sunak was there uh, for a meeting. He got fined as well. And I think he had so much disdain for the way that Boris Johnson had behaved. I think he felt that the shame that he brought upon himself meant that he did, as, as, as close as I understand, he did come close to wondering whether he just should, should quit at that moment. But the fact that occasionally over the last year he's been forced to recognise that for all his the shade he threw on the man next door, for all the eyebrow-raising engaged amongst some of his acolytes about what was going on number 10, he wasn't perfect either. We're at a point now where he's like Mr Squeaky Clean, he's pressing the reset button, it's all going to be dull. But that, he's not going to be afforded that luxury, possibly not for long. And, and last time he was in the eye of the storm, he found it quite painful what's it going to feel like this time another thing that you mentioned there was his indecision the way it seemed to all of us working in Westminster watching that that he was considering resigning for a very very long time before he actually did it seemed like that made things worse in his relationships with Boris Johnson because he was still in cabinet but not being fully supportive but I wonder if if that also speaks to something about his approach to politics I think that there's a very specific reason why sometimes you get two Rishi Sunaks and that's because there's where everybody wants him to be there is the place that all of his allies and acolytes people for whom he represents an advance for their careers and their hopes and their aspirations and then there's him. And I, and I do just wonder, and I've always had the sense that there have always been a group around him just slightly more keen on him challenging Boris Johnson, going for it, being bold, resigning, becoming Prime Minister, than him. And so you, you hear mixed messages. There's a point towards the, sort of, in the terminal phase of Liz Truss where all the official people were sort of indicating he'd be keen for it. But, but there were just the odd voices whispering, he's just not totally there, that he found the summer leadership contest horrible. He found the impact on his family 
dreadful. He like he's genuinely in two minds about what what to do next. Now, when it came to it, and the vacancy came, he went for it. But one of the reasons why you get this sense of I don't even think it's indecision. I think I think it's the different forces around him, even the different voices in his head, just 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 at conflict. Some people, like Claire Coutinho, and probably the man himself, look back on Rishi Sunak's leadership campaign from the summer, his warnings about inflation, as brilliant, principled, Cassandra-like, given all that's happened since. But you could equally take it as evidence that Rishi Sunak doesn't always seem to understand the electorate he's trying to win over. The main lesson that I took from Rishi Sunak's summer leadership contest was that he can make mistakes visible from space but not visible to himself. So he finally got down to the last two. Big moment. And then he sort of launched himself on the membership. And his way of doing it was to make himself to be the responsible one and present Liz Truss as the fiscally incontinent, the, 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 the spendthrift, the, you know, say anything to please the audience candidate. And pretty much within the first 24 hours, I listened to a whole bunch of stuff he did. And I just went on telly and said, he's doing Project Fear and he should know better than that. Because if there's one thing that's emotionally going to repel the conservative Brexit-leaning membership, it's Project Fear, this thing that they are hardwired to reject. Why is he doing that way of political campaigning? It's not going to work. And then you saw the awkwardness, the sort of, you know, the, 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 of, of a guy who has been gilded and hasn't been a lot in the rough and tumble, came across bluntly as a bit untested. And then towards the end, it was like there was a lot of whinging from Team Sunak about the role that YouGov played with their membership surveys and how that dominated the conversation and all the rest of it. And I think that's actually my third lesson from Leadership Course. He's like, he does like somebody to blame. And, and when he was Chancellor, sometimes it would be the OBR, sometimes it'd be colleagues, sometimes it'd be Boris. But, you know, whingy Rishi was evident in the leadership contest and is a real thing. And, and I wouldn't be totally surprised if it comes back when things get tough. So for all his talents, he is politically inexperienced, a bit untested. Shabana Mahmood, the Labour shadow cabinet minister who secured a vote of Rishi Sunak in his library geek days, has been keenly aware of his trajectory from across the political divide. So what does she make of him as an opponent now he's in the top job? Well, look, he's got obvious strengths. He's obviously immensely intellectually capable. You know, he comes across as hardworking. But I think there's a difference between the study of politics or the interest in politics as an academic discipline and then the actual hard graft and uh, the practice of politics. And I think um, his practice of politics, and I'm not just saying this because I'm Labour and I'm our elections coordinator, but I would say that's where there's been some more obvious missteps. So I think that you can have a trajectory that, you know, academically is seamless, right? You can just rise, get get your first go on to you know internationally recognized unis but the day-to-day of politics it doesn't necessarily read across that just because you're good in that discipline you're necessarily also going to be um you know a politician that can capture the moment that can answer the questions that people have in their daily lives and I think that's where he's been exposed maybe as a bit more flat-footed um and I think you know he his life and the way he's lived his life is very different to that of ordinary people uh, and I think that ability to connect is is perhaps therefore missing as well. Um, are you thinking of particular things when you say missteps? I'm thinking back to his spring statement, you know, trying to pay for whatever he bought at that petrol station using the barcode reader rather than, you know, the contactless, you know, using somebody else's car, not once but twice for your, you know, I'm filling up at the station, look how normal I am. So, I mean, I think they are you know, other people who are a bit more in touch in politics just would not make those kind of mistakes, right? So that's just a desire to put the PR ahead and front and centre rather than the substance. Um, and I think on the substance, of course, there are key questions, you know, cost of living crisis, inflation starting to spiral out of control when he was Chancellor, not having the answers, not wanting to do windfall tax. So I think there are questions of judgment as well as uh, ability to connect with ordinary workers and the concerns that they have um, about their livelihoods, uh, where, you know, I, I, I would say 
that track record and the academic track record are obviously in two different directions. And that's kind of where we can can expect the Labour attack lines to be coming from in the weeks and months ahead. Wait and see. (laughs) (laughs) Rishi Sunak is every pushy parent's dream boy. The polite, disciplined child at Temple the actual head boy of Winchester College, a glittering banking career and a meteoric rise to the top of British politics. He's taken a sort of head boy approach to life. He's impressed William Hague, Dominic Cummings, Conservative grandees, but has still to impress the country in a general election. I think we've learned that he is a person of sincere faith with a sense of duty, as well as clearly some serious personal ambition and drive. He is a cautious perfectionist and fundamentally a very new politician. We're about to see whether a cautious, head boy, technocratic, Californian approach to politics actually works and whether the richest politician we've ever had in British politics can effectively steer a country through a cost-of-living crisis. Is running the country another hoop Rishi Sunak can sail through on his quest for the perfect CV? Or is he about to discover just how messy, instinctive and brutal the blood sport of British politics really is? Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Jack's full interview with Rishi Sunak from March 2021. Thank you to all my guests this week, especially everyone at the Hindu Temple in Southampton. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.